Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig and welcome to this week's episode of the Full 60. I I honestly don't believe this is hyperbole when I say this week's guest is the best hockey writer of at least of my generation that I've ever read. Um, Michael Farber, longtime Sports Illustrated hockey writer, now still does stuff for SI, does stuff for TSN. He, you know, he's at the point in his career where he's he's picking whatever he wants to do. Um, some also works with NBC. He is just uh, an incredible storyteller. Turns phrases that make you laugh and make you, as a writer, mad that you didn't think of. Um, a, a guy that I just idolize as a writer and the the best part is about mike is he is as you know down to earth helpful when i was a, a young national hockey writer you know punk kids showing up on the scene would take all the time in the world whatever you needed like this is this is a guy you'd sit there and you'd read si or read a story he did at uh, an event you were covering and just blow us all out of the water and you never would ever know it in a million years in talking to mike um, humble, gracious, helpful, uh, amazing. And, and it all comes across. I mean, I'm sure you've seen him on TV, you've read his stuff, so you know all this about Mike. Um, but this was such a cool opportunity for me to ask questions I've always had, to go over some details of stories he's written, get to know more about him and how he ended up at SI. We talk about it, but there was a, a three-day span where he turned down jobs at The National and SI which is, uh, you know, that's that says a lot uh, about how in demand he is as a writer and, you know, and how he's been very intentional about the path of his career. There's a lot we can learn from Mike. So let's dive in. The Full 60 with Michael Farber. So typically in these, I tend to start with kind of a little bit of current events and then we peel back, we go backwards. I'm too, I'm worried in this case, if I do it, it's going to turn into us like, um, being scared about coronavirus for a half hour, and I'm not sure that's a path yeah. I want to go down right now. Yeah, prob- probably <laughs> isn't because it's it's like uh, Anchorman. Well, that escalated quickly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, it's, yeah. it's escalating quickly, and who knows? You know, I want this to last, and who knows? You know, anything we talk about can be completely outdated by say right. three o'clock. Yeah, exactly. So here's where I'm going to start. In okay. preparation for doing this, I reached out to a few writers and I said, hey, what's your favorite Michael Farber story that he's written? And in a testament to uh, your impact on all of us, A, people like immediately had answers, which I don't know if you could do that for a lot of writers. And okay. B, um, it, it spanned from every, you know, stories written 20 years ago to stories written recently to it wasn't a story. It was, you know, a documentary about a time he went to Israel to, to right. tell about hockey. And I just found that, I mean, that says a lot right there. Even, you know, I, I, someone was like, I just wish I could um, write as well as he tweets. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> like, so I wanted to get at some of those stories first and start there. And, okay. and, and I want to start because the anniversary's hit too. And, and it's all in, it's a favorite subject of mine. I think it was Bruce, Ar- Bruce Arthur who brought up, your story in SI from 2010 called Eight Seconds. Right. In which you gathered Jerome McGinley, Ryan Miller, Sidney Crosby, and Bill McCreary, which an important part of that discussion, um, yeah. to talk about yeah. the golden goal. And w- can you just start with the concept behind the, that idea? Well, that was clearly the most important part of that sporting calendar, at least the hockey calendar that year. It might have been the event of the year. There had not been a more important game um, played in Canada in the history of hockey. Yeah, keeping in mind that uh, what had happened in uh, in '72, the last four games were in Moscow. So uh, it, it was a big deal. Uh, right. It was yeah. yeah, and so that's so we took uh, it was at the NHL media. Mm. Okay, yeah. We got Miller 
and Crosby, and, and we had this on tape or, or DVD. I don't know. I'm I'm a technophobe. Yeah. And somehow, you know, we got it figured up, and they looked, and, and we went back and rolled it again. Okay, what are you thinking here? What do you see here? And, and they were greatly cooperative. And then I flew out to Calgary and, and spoke to a Ginla, showed him the same thing. And that was in training camp. And then at the referees' training camp in Collingwood, Ontario, uh, I sat down with Bill McCreary, maybe three hours, my talk mm-hmm. with Bill. And that's where that came from. I I thought, you know, the, the, the concept was, was cool. The idea of including Bill McCreary and, you know, people, that's that's kind of even been lost in history a little bit. Just, you know, the puck, I guess, hits his skate and, yeah. and change, you know, changes the, the flow of play a little bit. Um, what was that three hour conversation like with him? Well, we talked about so many things because, uh, he, he is probably the best referee of my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that he was working that game at all, uh, is a testament to hockey. The fact that it was a Canadian referee, in fact, two Canadian referees refereeing a USA Canada game. Where would you see that? Right, you wouldn't see right. that in in soccer. Uh, I can't imagine any other sport because there would be the appearance of favoritism, perhaps. Uh, but Brian Burke, to his credit, who was general manager of the U.S. team, was asked about it. He said, "No, I want the best referees." And these are essentially all NHL players anyway. So you wanted the best NHL referees, and they happened to be Bill McCreary and Dan O'Halloran. The irony here is there was a, a Finnish member of the directorate of referees. Yeah. And he didn't like McCreary's style. And he said, you got to get off the boards. you got to get to the middle of the ice more. Hmm. And, of course, the controversial play, as it turns out, happens along the boards. Yeah. And and <laughs> there's a very understated line in that piece that you did where Ryan Miller points out that he had no problem getting his skate up. I, you know, I think after again the gathered it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was you know that was difficult for Ryan because you know I was essentially torturing him, right? Yeah. You know, let's rewind this. I mean, yeah, we like, know how it ends, right? Right. I mean, it's not going to get any better. He's not making that save. <laughs> Yeah, and and the puck's coming out. But what's fascinating about that play is what it's basically harmless. I mean, Crosby's going one on four. Yeah. And within eight seconds, it morphs into something different. Quickly, it becomes basically a one on one along the the, the boards. I, you know, how quickly things turn. I mean, it, it, it's like a kaleidoscope. I'm sure you played with as a kid. Yeah where you turn it and suddenly the the image is different. And that's why when I look at hockey and everyone has it all figured out and, and everybody can break it down now and, and talk about all the you know high scoring chances and expected goals and everything else. Well, it happens so fast and hockey is a game of oops. Right. Things happen. You know, you're on this slippery surface on this very narrow blade and now a referee's foot comes into play. Right. And I'm not sure how you plan for that, and you don't. But if you're Sidney Crosby, you turn something out of nothing. And as you might recall, were you there? I was there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Crosby did not have a good, good tournament, no. especially. No. And I remember going to the Team Canada orientation camp or training camp, whatever it was, in Calgary in 09 and mm-hmm. they played the red and white game and Aginla and Crosby were on a line together and for two periods and they had nothing going on. I mean, there was zero chemistry. It was almost laughable. Yeah. And in the third period, San Luis went on that line instead of Aginla and suddenly magic. Hmm. And if you remember, uh, the narrative was, oh, who's going to play with Crosby? That's a difficult yeah, thing. Yeah, that was do. a good thing, yeah. And so it ends up, I said, well, you've got to put San Luis on that team. And in fact, he didn't make it and kind of got in the back door for 
for Sochi four years later. But I thought that would have gotten San Luis on the team, and you'd never see Crosby and Aguinola because there was zero chemistry. And on the most important goal ever scored on Canadian ice, it's Aguinola and Crosby. Um, what I found most interesting in going back and reading that piece was, so as a writer, I would have been tempted to, I guess, show off the access that I had to these players and load it down with quotes from them. I mean, you talked to Bill McCreary for three hours and you have, you know, you have access to Ryan Miller breaking this play down and you didn't do that at all. It was, it was just filled with each segment was just filled with information that was clearly reported out. Uh, how did you balance that? Do you like, did that come into your thought process at all in doing that? I never, you know, showing them off or showing off access. I right. Never. I mean that because of my ego, right? Like I'd be like, Hey, everyone, yeah. I was able to do. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, you know, it's, it's not about you and me, man. I, know, I mean, you I know, know, it's, it's about storytelling, which is the primal imaginative act. That's basically what we do. I wish I'd come up with that phrase. I read it somewhere, but that's what storytelling is. And using, the structure that I use, which is almost cheating, as you know, because mm-hmm. it's a straight narrative. And what I did want to point out, and it's especially true of Miller, there there was no, these were explanations and not excuses. Yeah. Uh, no one was blaming anyone or talking about it. And it was a way also to tell a little bit of a backstory of these officials. And the game starts with Bill McCreary, who was the lead official, as it were, with Dan O'Halloran. And what he does is he flips the puck as a way of saying hello. His daughter, who had a stroke as a child, as a five-year-old. And this was what McCreary uh, did. And that's a way to mention his daughter and to make Bill McCreary human mm. and not just a you know, uh, an appendage in, in this play. And to get into Aginla and his optimism, his inherent optimism, and to get into Crosby's sense of, of a play and his vision, and, and to get into the way Miller would read a play. So those are the things that interest me. And, and the fact that if, if the USA had won that game, yeah. uh, Ryan Miller his life would have changed. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the interesting thing is Crosby's life didn't. Uh, Paul Henderson, uh, who scored the goal in 72, as, as everyone knows, I mean, that, that marked his life. I mean, this is just one other great thing Crosby has done. <laughs> right. You know, right. If, ever, if you score the most important goal in the history of hockey played in Canada, you'd think, wow, that's everything. Well, for Crosby, it's just one of a laundry list of things. So uh, it was an easy structure. Yeah. And it was the way to weave and hold the story together. And it was a reminder that history is often made up of regimen and, and random in equal measures. And this is what we saw. Yeah. And you did, uh, you did hint at the difference, like if the U.S. wins, I, I think you pointed out Joe Pavelski had an opportunity a few seconds before, or fairly yeah. quickly before that. And right, like imagine, imagine now if it's Joe Pavelski scoring, Ryan Miller's the star of the Olympics. I mean, we don't know, and it was so close to being that. And we're talking about Sidney Crosby having an average at best performance. Well, you know, Miller was already blowing up in right. terms of what social media was at the time. I mean, there was a Miller goal on ice stuff going in. <laughs> I mean, you know, he was big and you know, I really like Ryan Miller. I mean, I yeah, really yes. like him because he was a, you know, a smart, thoughtful hockey guy and from a, a great hockey family hockey extended family. And he was now married and then, dating or engaged to an actress and you know he would have been this national figure and americans as you know so well love their goaltenders Mm. just love them because in in a game that's sometimes very difficult to figure out and at one point was really difficult to take in on television 
the goaltender's the easiest position in a way to understand. You stop the puck, you don't stop the puck. Uh, and the American public has generally lionized its goaltenders going back to 1960 and Jack McCartan, who was the hero in Squaw Valley, and, of course, Jim Craig in 1980. Mm-hmm. And even Ray LeBlanc in 92 beat Switzerland, and everyone jumped on the Ray LeBlanc train. Yeah. Uh, at the time, he was playing in Indianapolis in the eye. So, but, you know, he was, he was the guy. Uh, and so I, I, I understand that. And I think Ryan Miller would have been a great American hockey hero. And I'm, sometimes I feel bad that he didn't get that chance. If it, like, we forget how, like, burning hot he was in that spotlight for a short period. Like, I remember there was a point where people were calling, or somebody called into, like, CNN and posed as him, and they did an, it became this big, like, Ryan Miller was such a big name that people were, like, acting as Ryan Miller. Really? On, oh, yeah, like, there was some story that happened where that somebody, that, like, a fake Ryan Miller did an interview. It, it was like, he was every, and then all of a sudden, everyone just went back to their places because, you know, Sidney Crosby, and and I loved the the anecdote you know, you know, we remember, we remember Sid calling out Iggy, and you can hear it when you watch. Like I've gone yeah. back and listened, um, and you, you wrote Jerome McGinley didn't even like that nickname. Initially. No, I hated <laughs> the nickname. Uh, well, initially, anyway, you were used yeah. to it, but you know, he said, "What is it, Eggy?" I mean, it yeah. somehow sounded soft, and, and Jerome McGinley clearly wasn't a soft player. Uh, never liked being called Iggy, and uh, was known forever as Iggy. It was also a way to tell the story of Jerome McGinley yeah. in Salt Lake City. He was a late addition to the Team Canada. He he was invited to training camp, basically, because he lived in Calgary. Mm-hmm. And that's where Team Canada was holding his training camp. I mean, he uh, really didn't expect to make the team. Not only did he make the team, he, he played extremely well uh during the olympics there were some fans he met from calgary uh who'd been sleeping in their car well he found this out and he made a couple phone calls and arranged to get them a hotel room where families were staying for team canada and he paid for their rooms and he's a remarkable kind of guy and, and the best advertisement for the sport when you want to talk about hockey at its best and the best people, well, you know, Jerome McGinley's right there. Yeah. Um, another story that came up, and this was this was my this is my favorite, and this is one that made me stop reading Michael Farber for a while because I was it made me self conscious as a writer. But you did a piece. That's a true story. You did a piece on on Brian Burke, man of his word, that ran around that same time um, after the death of his son Brendan. Um, yeah. With just the the killer, and this I think this came from Brian. You know, in times like this, tissues don't hold up. Go with paper towels. Um, that line just still like it crushed me then and crushes me now. Um, that's not an easy story to write in the moment when everybody. You know, at that moment, Brian Burke in the U.S. is the. You know, prior to all that was hey, you know, we're the underdogs, and he's building this team up as this great and in, in, is in the spotlight, and then you know, makes a choice to go to Vancouver. Um, how, how did, what was your approach with that? Well, let me tell you about the risk I took with that. Okay. And it's got nothing to do with the story, but everything about writing for Sports Illustrated, because the U.S., if it had lost its the quarterfinal game on Wednesday, the story is essentially obsolete. Mm-hmm because the magazine came out on Thursday. Most people would get it in the mail on Thursday, and right. the U.S. would have been out. So we're taking the risk that the U.S. wins its quarterfinal game, and you know, we have no... <laughs> right. That's a pretty no big risk. <laughs> it was. It was, yeah. but I thought it was a good story. Um, that story came about um, because Brian Burke was willing to be open yeah, and discuss it, and because I've known Brian for a long time, there's a relationship there, um, a level of trust, and I I think that's certainly important. It was a a rainy day in Vancouver, 
And wow, that's a scoop, huh? Rainy yeah. day in Vancouver never happens. And I walked to the uh, uh, the house that had been set up in LG. I'm stumbling over it. Yeah. Uh, and, and wanted to talk to them, uh, you know, about you know Brian's support. Yeah. And uh, you know they were. They were very open and you know, talked to a guy who was a hockey player and, you know, this is important what Brian has done, you know, embracing his legacy of his late son. And, of course, he's Canadian, so he hoped that uh, Canada would kick the USA's butt. And then I went to the practice facility, and I remember John. I went with John Van Beesbrook. Uh, for some reason, and we're there, but you know, Brian was sitting by himself, and you know, so I sat with Brian during the American practice, and, and we talked about it. And I, I think the most difficult question, and I was a little bit worried about asking it, yeah, um, but was how often did you use homophobic slurs when you yeah. played? Remember, you played in college, yeah, and in the minors, and he said constantly, and mm-hmm. you know, we all did, and I'm embarrassed about it. Uh, and so he didn't seem bothered by the question. And, and what surprised me, well, maybe it didn't surprise me, um, the, the cops who were in the ring came over and thanked Brian uh, because he had treated them very well. I don't know what exactly that entailed, but he'd been a guy in the community when he had been general manager of, of the Canucks and, and, and there was some real sympathy there and, and perhaps almost empathy. And, you know, I was lucky enough to get to tell his story and because we had a relationship and the story was worth telling. Yeah. Um, someone highlighted that line. You mentioned it raining the line, the heavens do not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. When it rains, everyone gets wet. I mean, that's, Yeah. yeah. Hey, let me just interrupt this conversation with Mike just for a second to share a special deal for listeners from DoorDash. If you're anything like me, um, the perfect night is hanging out at home uh, with people that you enjoy being around. If you're introverted like me, it's probably no more than two or three people. And get a glass of wine and you have food ordered in and you have somebody else go and pick it up. It's like like I'm a very simple person, easy to please. Basically, I don't want to move. That's it. If I could be fed really good food without having to go anywhere, that is the ideal. That's why uh, DoorDash is pretty amazing. DoorDash brings all of America's flavors to your door. Ordering is easy. All you have to do is open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and food will be delivered to you wherever you are. I mean, that's what they say, wherever you are. You guys should test that. Not only is uh, your favorite pizza joint already on DoorDash, but there's over 310,000 restaurant partners in 4,000 cities. So, yeah, wherever you are. Um, So you might be able to find a new favorite on there, too. So right now, our listeners of the Full 60 can get $5 off your first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the code FULL60, F-U-L-L. Six zero. That's five dollars off your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter the code Full Sixty. You get door-to-door delivery in all fifty states, Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia, and you can order from your local stores or restaurants. I mean, maybe stores too, or choose from your favorite national chains like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick Fil A, and the Cheesecake Factory. So to get five dollars off, don't forget that's code. Full 60 for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. Um, another favorite from somebody, and this, like, this is great because it's like it, the, the fact that I, within 30 seconds they can say, yeah, there was a story in the Montreal Gazette on June 4th, 1998 called Pat Burns Goes Home. Yeah. And again, I love the concept. This is, and, and, I, and I try to do this when, when possible. It's like, okay, let's, let's put somebody in a time and place, right? And and walk them through it, and and you you got Pat to you know go go to his childhood home, and it really captures, I think the man. Did was that a, a easy thing to get him to agree to? Do you remember that backstory? Oh, very well. Yeah, 
because <laughs> the day he got hired as the coach, uh, I, what I did, and I was writing a column at the Gazette at the time, uh, I called his ex-partner on the police force in yeah. Gatineau. Yeah. Um, because who knows a cop better than his ex-partner? <laughs> right. And he regaled me with stories, including one that, that Pat was in a house to break up a domestic dispute, and the woman knocked him out with a frozen turkey. <laughs> and, uh, and there were other stories about what a great, tough cop Pat had been. So... Now, this is uh, a Saturday. I have a scheduled 20-minute interview with Pat in the Canadian's office, and the PR woman, Michelle LaPointe, says, oh, I don't think Pat's going to talk to you. He's so angry with you for that story. And no kidding. Finally, the frozen guess, turkey story? Well, no, just like, <laughs> you know, I talked to you know, his ex-partner and all the yeah, stories sure. and all the tough guys Pat put away. And he, yeah, he, yeah. I put away all these tough guys. And some of them can even read. And so when they get out, they're going to come look for me. Ah, oh, right, right, right. So uh, we, uh, we sorted that out. And then uh, I said, let's get out of here. Let's take a walk. And he grew up not far from the, uh, from the forum. And we walked around the neighborhood. The problem with that story mm-hmm. is, as I discovered much later, is a lot of it was fantasized. Really? Yeah, that, that Pat was spinning tales that true. weren't true. And, um, you know, I, I figured he knew his own childhood. And there, there, yeah, was, yeah. there was some embellishment. But I, I agree with you. I, I think the technique is good. And I did it again when Jacques Demers was hired. And I said, let's get out of here. Let's drive around your old neighborhood. And he told some great stories. We got to the building where he had grown up and he used to, his father had been the the superintendent of that building. Yeah. And he used to shovel coal for Busher Curry. Floyd Curry lived in that apartment building and he used to shovel coal in the furnace. And those are the stories you aren't going to get sitting in an office. No. And and that's why, uh, and I think, the story you know, worked well because you know Damaris had a great story to tell. He was a he was driving a a truck uh, for a a soda company. I can't remember if it was Coke or Pepsi. Yeah, and that's how he ended up getting involved. He was coaching a minor team. One thing led to another. He's a head coach in the World Hockey Association. Um, but then it's getting a chance to tell his story. And, and again, I'm thankful these people allowed me to do that. Yeah, I love that. Um, when I ask, asked um, Alex Pruitt, the friend uh, at SI, yeah. he, he, he rattled off a bunch of stories and he said, it's not the stories themselves, it's the one-liners, of course, that, mm-hmm. that make me laugh and say basically only Mike Farber could have thought of that. Now, I want to ask you as a writer... I can't, um, I like, that's not a strength of mine at all. Like uh, a pun. Is that, is that a natural thing or can a writer develop that in your opinion? Can you like look for a turn of a phrase? Well, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to grow up near New York city where on Saturday mornings, one of the independent channels, I believe it was channel five. And again, there were only seven channels at the time, the three networks and three other stations They would show Marx brothers movies Mm. and Groucho Marx and the Marx brothers influenced me in the way that language can be played with. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's almost like seeing a clown at a children's party with a balloon and watching him turn the balloon into animals yeah, and, and twisting and, and turning. And, and this is what Groucho Marx and people like S.J. Perlman, the writer, could do. And so that's where my sense of humor and, and my sense of the flexibility of the English language came in. So, yeah, I, I get to... To mess around, and sometimes if I'm really lucky, it'll actually work in the story rather than just be, you know, something <laughs> I'm doing because I'm messing around. Um, he, he, Alex, had mentioned a story you did on Joe Thornton when 
the Sharks made it to the Stanley Cup yeah. Finals against the Penguins a couple of years ago. I went and reread reread that story, and the lead is about uh, Jumbo the elephant dying two hundred yards from where Joe Thornton played. How like was how did you find that out? Like how did that's crazy. Like what's crazy? The elephant the, the, dying. The, the elephant yeah. died. That so we have here's this guy named Jumbo, right? And you know from St. Thomas. And you know, here we're going to lead into the story, and we're going to go back, you know, whatever to the 1800s and tell of the elephant di- jumbo dying. Like I just right. like, I, I, like, where do you even find that nugget of information? Well, um, yeah, it's just you know, Jumbo the elephant, of course, for Disney Disney files was dumb became Dumbo the elephant, right? And, and all that and. St. Thomas was known for this, and I don't know. I, I didn't. Oh, I guess maybe I. Sh- it was. It was already known for this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it was. It was something there, and I, I think it plays into the the whole Jumbo Joe. I mean, he's right. big. He's six four, but he's not Charit big. Right. So, um, and pieces can start anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that. When I left newspapers and went to magazine, magazine at Sports Illustrated, you had to figure out that people say, "Well, uh, this is a typical Sports Illustrated lead. You, you, you know, you mm-hmm. paint a scene, and yeah, that could work. But there are all kinds of ways. Sometimes the story just starts where it starts, right? And it doesn't have to start there. And I, I remember doing a story in, in Eric Carlson mm-hmm. uh, after. He came back and he had that wonderful playoffs for the Senators. And and the story starts with, you know, the history of telling injuries uh, mm-hmm. and talking about injuries in the National Hockey League. And I came up years ago with the diagonal theory. When teams would say a player hurt his left ankle, that would mean his right shoulder. <laughs> if you go the diagonal of the body. Yeah. And then here's Eric Carlson saying exactly what his particular injury was. So stories start where they start. Yeah. And when you're writing for a newspaper, as you recall, I mean, you're always listening for leads. Right. You're thinking of leads. And well, sometimes you don't have to do that with a magazine story. You can start them wherever you want as long as you get to where you want to go. So did it, was there a time, did it take time to break from the scene lead? Like I like that's a crutch that I still lean on. I would say too much. You just it's an easy way to get ease into a story. Well, did that have to be can work? Yeah. yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong with a scene lead, but you know when I left uh, the Montreal Gazette for Sports Illustrated in 1994, you know you kind of think, well, there's a way to write, and then it's always a scene lead. So and so at his locker. So and so having lunch. Yeah. And. And maybe I overdid that, or until I got a little more comfortable, and then just you know, went off and tried other things. I mean, Dan Jenkins, if you go back in the history of the magazine, you know, could could do that, and it was a way to delay the lead to set a larger scene right. uh, than not just specifically what athlete X is doing, and then get into something else and. And to to write about the the broader world. Mm-hmm. All right, so, all right, I mean that's a good segue. I want to get into your career, and I want to specifically get into a three day span in 1989 where you got job offer from, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, the National and SI, and I believe yeah. you turned them both down. Yeah, I did. Um, I was in Atlantic City. Uh, covering a fight, a championship fight. And I used to go do that for the Gazette. And I think that was the time I went to a Bob Dylan was playing a casino in Atlantic City, actually outside the casino, a little amphitheater they set up. And he was terrible, by the way. Yes. I mean, it was embarrassingly bad. But anyway, the national called, and I went in and had lunch with Frank DeFord, whom I had known from tennis many, many years ago. He basically wanted me to do, you know, like note columns and things of which I had no interest in doing. 
but it was very flattering. Yeah. And then SI offered me a job, and and, uh, and I can't remember which came first, but it was in within those three days, and I thought about SI, and they had so many hockey writers. Yeah. I mean, you know, Ed, Ed Swift had done it, E.M. Swift, you know, did a great job, and Jack Fowler had done a great job, but they never seemed happy mm. with them. And, you know, Peter Gammons was an SI hockey writer uh, for a little while. I didn't know that. I, yeah, wow. I mean, you know, and Bob Kravitz, you know, you know, a terrific guy and, and yeah. you know, really, really solid guy. And they're just going through. And I said, well, you know, all these really good people, they don't like any of them, you know? So <laughs> why would I possibly do any better? And, uh, so I decided to stay at the Montreal Gazette. Uh, SI said, we're starting SI Canada. Uh, do you want to freelance for us? And I said, sure, that's not an issue. And I started doing some of that. And I do a couple pieces, and uh, SI Canada end up disappearing. And then in '93, um, you know, the magazine called again. Um, it was I was at the World Series in Philadelphia, and they wanted me to come right away. And I said, "Well, let me get home. I haven't been home in a while." Went home, got came down to New York, and I sat with Mark Mulvoy for about 15 minutes. They never made me an offer. Yeah. I uh, I go home and my wife says, "Well, what happened?" I said, "I have no idea." <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then in December of that year, uh, Mark says, "Hey, can you fly down and I want to talk to you?" And I said, "Well, I was just down there at the end of October." Uh, he said, oh, "Come on down." So and, and they offered me a job, and. Certain things that happened in '93. I'd lost my mother and I'd lost my grandmother within a, within a period of about two months, mm-hmm. and I knew I needed to change something, and so it seemed the proper time to um, join the magazine. Um, so, and, and that's at a point in the magazine where it's still. Uh, have, did, did you have you read the franchise, the the book, kind of oh, the history of sports? Sure. Yeah. Sure. So, like, I I read that with such like longing for a time that that was before mine, and like, you know, how far removed was it when you joined from like you being able to go spend a thousand dollars on clothes on the road and nobody batting an eye and that sort of yeah, thing? pretty far <laughs> removed. Okay. I mean, right. it, it really ninety nine was the thing, although. You know, sometimes Mark Mulvoy, who was left in 96, yeah. would call you and, and say, gee, why don't you take your wife to dinner on the company? Or, hey, you're on the road. Why don't you get a massage? Or, eh, no, no thanks, Mark. But yeah, it, it was a great place to work um, because you were working with great people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the the company you kept on that masthead was embarrassing it was so good i was embarrassed to be part of it um the funniest thing si put together a a hockey book and it was excerpts of pieces and there's a piece written by william faulkner who in 1955 one year after the magazine's founding uh went to a rangers canadians game at madison square garden and wrote about it and so I've got a couple pieces in there. And if you go alphabetically in the, in the listing of the writers, there's Farber and then there's Faulkner. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah. God, you know, if, if Stephen Johnson, my English teacher, who's teaching light in August to us idiots, yeah. could have ever seen that, I mean, that would have that would have been hilarious. So that's the funniest thing. Um, but it was great company and I was honored to be on that masthead. So do you have a favorite? Like we all have our favorite Farber stories. Um, no, I, you know, I'm, I, I don't, you know, I, I've written, you know, a lot that I've liked and, and yeah. sometimes I'll, I'll, when something happens that, about somebody I'd written about, I'll, I'll go and look at it and say, oh, okay, that was pretty good. I don't remember being, I don't remember the story being that interesting or it's better than right. I thought, but you know, quite often you remember this is the stories you don't write well, or yeah. you, you didn't 
you know, that should have been better. Gee, that was a mess. Or uh, if I'd thought harder about it, that was not the way to go. And, and, and as you know, Craig, every you look at a story and you can finish it and you hit the send button. And if you looked at that story in two hours or 24 hours, you'd want to change something. Yeah, absolutely. And And so... You know, at some point, you have to let these go and then and think of the next one. I, I was in the United Center. I guess this would have been the final in 2010. And I was sitting next to my colleague, who was the, now the hockey editor, among other things, at Sports Illustrated, Sarah Kwok. Yeah. And she was the hockey reporter then. And... I, I preferred to write in the quiet of a hotel room rather than in the rink, but for whatever reason, I was writing in the rink. And she's looking at me, and she says, you're a really quick writer. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, Sarah, I guess I am, but I'm a really slow thinker because I obsess about things, and I yeah. think about things, and I try things out in my mind. And... You know, when I'm ready to write, I'm ready to write. Uh, I'll tell you a story about something that occurred in the the old Omni in Detroit. Remember that hotel across yeah. from the rent center? Yeah, yeah. Of course you do. Uh, I was doing a story involving the Red Wings. There was that that was the time when Hashik was there, mm-hmm. and Curtis Joseph was there, and Manny Legacy was there, and of course Hashik and Joseph had no relationship. You recall that pretty well, right? Yeah, yeah. And there was one day, and I hope I get this right, that Hashik wasn't well enough to practice, and Joseph was on the ice, and Legacy was in court getting a divorce. Mm. I think that's right. And so they had one goalie, and the stuff with the Joseph and Hashik was out there, and you know Manny Legacy, God love him, I mean, what a chatterbox he was. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I asked Brett Hull, I said, "What do you think of your goalie situation?" He says, "What situation? We got one goalie like this, we got another goalie like this, and we got another goalie who never shuts up." And so I, I quote Brett Hall in the story that I'm writing, yeah. The Omni, and then I want to sum it up somehow. I, you know, so it's quote said Brett Hall, comma, who has a gift for what? You know, for summation, oh, right? Preci. And so I'm literally walking around my room for 20 minutes trying to come up with the right word. Yeah. And I come up finally with Precy. Now, do I spell it with the accent in the French way or doesn't take an accent in English? What do I do? So that's another 10 minutes. <laughs> accent, no accent. Uh, okay, I send the story in. It runs in the magazine and it reads whatever, whatever, comma, close quote, deadpanned bread hull. And I wanted to jump out a window. <laughs> wanted to just jump out a window. Oh my gosh! Oh, that's amazing. Oh, it's funny. Like my my wife and kids tease me because I like I like I'll just be, you know, thinking about a story and obsessing over it, and they'll be like, you know, Daddy's writing a story right now. Like I'll just be like, you know, on the deck or something, right? And they're like, I'll leave Daddy alone right now. He's writing a story because that's how yeah. I am. I just I have to like. Or I'll shower for an hour. You know, I just have to, like, gather it. And then sure. and then I write. I do tend to write fast. And then I never, I, and I don't know how you are, I won't read anything I write afterwards. It's like, if it's published, like, I wouldn't, because to me, I found only bad things can happen. I noticed the deadpan, you, you know, got switched. Right. And yeah, I'm like, and I, 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 I don't want to torture myself like that. No, I don't, I don't read it right away. But it, right. In, you know, a couple of years later, <laughs> right, when, right, when something comes up, and I'll, I'll go back. And I was, I have a plant in my dining room, and it's the Isaiah Thomas plant. Okay. And it's the Isaiah Thomas plant because in 1994, I guess. Uh, I went and did a story on Isaiah Thomas, who at that point had been named general manager of the Toronto Raptors. 
Okay. And um, he liked the story. And three days later, a doorbell rings. There's a florist delivery guy and there's a plant. And it's from Isaiah Thomas. And we've given people cuttings from this plant. It's still alive. <laughs> quarter of a century later. So I'm, I'm telling somebody, a friend at, uh, at dinner the other night, I said, you know, that's, that's amazing. I still have this plant. And so I said, well, let me find the story and I'll send it to you. So I went back and found the story on the SI vault. And I said, hmm, yeah, okay. And so uh, that was the first time I'd read it in quarter of a century. So that's, hmm. that's how I rediscovered it. You go back, you give it 20, 25 years. Yeah. Yeah, let it let it simmer. Let Let's it see how it uh, how it's aged. Oh, that's great. Um, all right, one more interruption. I promise this is it uh, with my conversation with Mike. I was honestly just having a conversation yesterday with the athletics Katie Strang, and we were saying we're we were wondering and debating. And this is what we do in our spare time. Who on our staff at the Athletic Detroit was going to be the first to get married, and when are we going to have our first wedding? featuring the athletic writers because um, I'm now at an age where all my friends are married. So I've missed wedding season, but we have a lot of young writers in their mid twenties and I'm excited to get back into weddings. All right. That's a complete aside, but if they do, I hope they're using the black tux. The black tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit or tuxedo for their big day. Did you know the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? Turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible, unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. Uh, Another review. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. What I love about the Black Tux is that they have an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check one last time. Talk about commitment. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. And I wish this existed a thousand years ago when I got married. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with the code FULL60. That's blacktux.com, code FULL60 for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux formal wear for the moment. I want to get um, a little personal here, not that we haven't already. And if it's, you don't want to talk about anything you have, you know, feel free. I, one okay. thing, um, one thing that struck me is there was, there was, I think somebody said you're, you're a reporter with an inner soul and uh, which I think reflects in the work. How do you and, spell soul? <laughs> it's, it's S O U L in this case. Okay. All right. Um, and I read where your father died at 29. Yep. His father died at 29. Yep. And with heart issues. And I think on some level that has to impact you and your approach to life. What did, uh, how did yeah. it? Or how did, um, well, I had a quadruple bypass at the age of 50. Mm. So, um, you know, I didn't win the good genes pool. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, you know, that was just something that I'm going to deal with and we dealt with and, you know, great doctors and that would have been in Oh two. So, you know, as we record this, I'm still alive. Yes. Which is reassuring. Uh, yeah. Um, that's, you know, that's what, uh, you know, genetics you know that that's what i have to deal with and you know we, we've gone on and you know you just hope your kids uh, aren't going to go through that at, at a young age and uh, and 
you know, I hear people say, well, that really puts something in perspective. I said, really, you don't have perspective before that? <laughs> right. you know, come on. Right. You know, what you've been doing? Well, that puts things in perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always kind of known what's important in life, and uh, I imagine most people do. So, like, it had to have impacted your decisions, right? Just in, in, in terms of your career. And, I mean, right now, you, I mean, you could work as much or as little as you want to. Yeah. And, I mean, you're, you're making that choice very clearly. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Um, I, I, I was, last couple of years at SI full-time, and, and I'm still there, and I'm a special contributor in order to write once a year, twice a year sometimes. And I enjoy it and, uh, you know, hope to continue to do it as long as the magazine's there writing once a year. But, uh, I I felt I I wasn't fresh. I felt I'd been repeating myself. Um, Mm -hmm. that made me unhappy. Uh, so I guess it was 2012, um, New Jersey in Los Angeles, met final. And so you're flopping back and forth from coast to coast. I'm saying, boy, I'm just ready to go. I hope SI offers buyouts. <laughs> uh, I land in uh, at Kennedy, and there's somebody from the office calling and saying, yeah, SI's offering buyouts. Mm. And I say, where do I sign up? Um, but before that, I actually uh, called a friend of mine. I'd say I would have been 60 or not quite 61, almost 61, and called a dear, dear friend of mine uh, from high school who was a doctor. And uh, I said, what do you think? And he said, uh, what do you plan to do with the last 10 years of your life? And I said, hmm. He said, listen, I know you, I know your family history, and I had cancer in 2011. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had a stroke in 99. So, you know, the stuff that happened. So yeah. I said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, you'll probably, you know, live past 70, but, you know, your pr- productive, happy years, you know, most likely will between, be between 60 and 70. What do you want to do with them? Mm. And that really was helpful. And what I knew I didn't want to do was to go to Detroit the next weekend and write about the Red Hot Wings or you know, the Blackhawks and, and do stuff. I, I wanted to, you know, do things that appealed to me, amused me, um, and, and that didn't involve the, the pressures of writing constantly. So right. SI was great. Uh, you know, they arranged for me to stay on so I got full 20 years and a bump in benefits by you know, basically carrying me for 18 months while doing basically no work and then ended after Sochi uh, and then kept me on the masthead. You know, they tailored it to whatever I wanted to do. And certainly, you know, family history and health issues uh, were part of that. And and now, you know, I'm lucky enough to you know, get my mug on TV in Canada on TSN and I do some consulting for NBC, and, and it's great. So uh, I get to, to pick and choose and uh, goof off a lot. And so instead of going to Detroit to write about whatever's happening there, like I, I, I mentioned earlier, but that trip 2013, you go to Israel, and you're writing about you know the Arab and Jewish hockey players playing together, which is yeah, yeah, amazing. That was, that was great. That was the idea of Josh Scheiman, the TSN feature producer. Yeah, when we put together a half-hour uh, documentary, I'd never been to Israel, and I haven't been back since. This was in Matula, in the far north of the country, where there is a. Canada House, I think it's called, where there's a rink, you know, mm. regulation rink, and uh, there was a a former, uh, I guess it would be, I don't know if he was a Leafs employee or as an employee of the arena in Toronto, but uh, who went over there as the head coach, and and it was terrific because Matula is literally we were. 250 meters from the border of Lebanon. And you'd see 
Hezbollah just scoot by there all the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was a fascinating experience. And a lot of the players uh, were Druze who came from the Golan Heights. And uh, we got up to the Golan Heights and, um, you know, it was, it was fascinating. And, and again, it's what we were talking about earlier, Craig. It's about storytelling. And this is right. another way to tell a story. And one of the fun things about television for me is you have teammates. You know, yeah. Writing, as you know quite well, is solitary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll find an editor at some point, to, and maybe even during the process of writing, there'll be something collaborative. Uh, but generally, you're on your own. Well, on TV, you're working with a producer, you're working with the cameraman, you're working with a sound man, there might be somebody else. And it was nice after all these years of you know, just kind of going on your own uh, to have other people there to, you know, who have creative input and, and, and to share in a project. And so we're very, very lucky to do that. And, you know, it was great to, you know, interview these kids who were so optimistic and interview their parents who were less optimistic. Right. And, and to get, uh, tell other people's stories. And one of the things I've wanted to do is go back there and see what has happened to these children they were i guess about 12 years old then and you know whatever happened to them and and whether their attitudes have changed and i'm hoping that on the anniversary uh 10 year anniversary maybe i can convince tsn to retrace our steps and and see what happened to these people that would be awesome Uh, and we talk about that at the athletic that's something we don't do enough as writers like we we tell these stories and move on to the next thing and i think there's some great opportunities to circle back, right? And people like to see what happened. And, right. And SI, in fact, I'm working on a piece for now it's a monthly, but uh, where are they now? Yeah. Uh, and it's a, been a very successful issue over the years because we are so influenced by what we saw in our past and, and we're so curious. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, the first time I saw Bobby Orr, you know, I was 15. And that's the age, right? Right. Whatever you see at 15, there can never be anything greater. <laughs> it's so it true. can't be, by definition. Right. That's right. It, it is the coolest, greatest thing you'll ever see. And I was going to high school in Providence. And one Saturday in November, uh, I took a bo- bus up to Boston. And bought a scalp ticket for the garden, paid a hundred percent markup, paid five bucks for a two fifty ticket. <laughs> yeah. Sat in Dorena in what I recall was the same side as the old press room in the garden. And this is upstairs. And I sat there with my mouth open for two mm-hmm. and a half hours because I'd never seen anything like. Yeah. And that was Orr's rookie year. It's last year, the original six. And it was a 3-3 tie with the Rangers. And I knew there could never be any other hockey player as good uh, because of the certitude that only comes with youth. But what happens to these people um, you know, is, is of endless fascination to us. It's why the most successful books, sports books anyway, are geared on what happened about 20 years ago, because yeah. now we have time to reflect on, on what we've seen and, and what our mind remembers. And, and these, and also because readers tend to be a little bit older and they want to look back and think of a time when they were a little bit younger. Yeah. Um, it's funny you mentioned going to that game. I think, I think you said at one point hockey, hockey was a happy accident, was like that being the, the topic sure. of your career. Um, yeah, is, is, was it baseball? Was that, if I remember correctly, was baseball well, the you, initial you thought? grow up, you know, as, a, as an American kid. Yeah. I mean, I'm the same thing. Yeah. Dual citizen. I mean, your first sport is probably going to be baseball. Yeah, for sure. Right? That's, you know, just the way it works. And, you know, the family, I'm from my father's side, you know, it was the Brooklyn Dodgers legacy and, 
grew up a National Leaguer and hating the Yankees. And yeah, I mean, my first hockey game I went to was uh, after Jack McCartan came back from Squaw Valley in 1960. Uh, he played a handful of games for the Rangers. And the first game I saw was a 2-2 tie against the Leafs sat along the glass at Madison Square Garden and I was terrified because guys would keep crashing in the glass. I was <laughs> sure it was going to break. But as a kid, you played whatever sport was in season. Yep. And you liked all sports. And you know, I had covered the Rangers in 76, 77, something for the Bergen record in Hackensack, New Jersey. And you know, loved it. But still, uh, when I moved to Montreal in 1979, um, you know, if you were going to be here, uh, then you had to immerse yourself in what had gone on in the history of Montreal Canadiens. Curiously, the Expos at that time uh, were uh, after the Canadiens won the Cup in 79, and the Expos really took over in a very exciting team and narrowly missed winning the uh, National League that year. And the Expos you know, we're a big deal. And I did probably more baseball than I did hockey. But as the Expos, well, after their run ended basically in 83, I ended up doing more and more hockey. Um, your daughter is a sports writer, right? In Moscow? Is that right? She's a writer. A writer. Um, okay. I don't want to... Yeah. yeah, she works for Reuters. And, and she does covers some doping and also covers, as we speak, the central bank and the treasury. I mean, she's the smart one in the family. She is. So you did journalist in the family. You encouraged it or you didn't discourage uh, it. No, I, I didn't encourage it back when she was, <laughs> come on, <laughs> you know, you want your yeah. kids to do better than you. That's right. That's right. Um, but when she was applying to, to schools in, in Canada, she applied to, um, Concordia University in the journalism program, McGill in political science, and the University of Ottawa in international affairs and languages. And it was clear to me uh, that Ottawa was the best choice. And in fact, that's where she went to school. She uh, would take two, it's, University of Ottawa is a bilingual university, and she would take two classes in English, two in French and she would take one in Russian. And wow. when she was 15, again, that magic age, she decided uh, she would um, be fluent in Russian by the age of 25. And in fact, she was. And she worked really hard at it. So uh, she was working for the uh, Canadian State Department the equivalent of the U.S. State Department uh, and on contracts in Ottawa. And there was no certainty a contract's going to be renewed. So she just basically wrote to the Moscow Times, English language paper, and said, can I get a job there? And her only journalism background was she'd been involved with some community radio station one summer mm -hmm. and ended up getting a job. And stayed a little while and went to uh, Agence France Press in Moscow and now went to Reuters. And as we speak, that's where she is. And uh, it was neat because she was doing some work for NBC at Sochi. So I got to be there with her then. And she covered Pyeongchang and she's going to Tokyo. So she does some sports and she does some other things. Does she ask for writing advice? I'd be curious. Like, does she, like, the, kind of the nuts and bolts? Um, not beforehand. I mean, afterwards, yeah. you know, she'll say, hey, look at this and what can be yeah. done better. Yeah. I've just taken a swig of water, but. Oh, yeah. She, uh, no, she doesn't uh, ask for much. She's actually helping me on this story I'm working on for Sports Illustrated. Uh, doing some reporting uh, in Kiev and in Moscow. That's great. Well, last thing, my sure. my son is about to turn fifteen, so th we're, this is the the age. I feel now all this pressure that whatever we put in front of him, he's going to be talking about in thirty years. Any any advice? Uh, 
for somebody raising children about to hit that momentous no, age? You know, it's, it's all you can do is give them opportunities. Mm. Let them choose and, and you know, make their own decisions. And, and that's sometimes the toughest part of being a parent. It's biting your tongue. <laughs> I'm not great at that. And uh, you know, just let them go and uh, enjoy it. But I will tell you this. I miss, I miss when you know, she was no longer playing soccer. Mm-hmm. She was a pretty good soccer player. And, uh, you know, when your kids grow up and now I got three grandkids and, uh, it's great fun to see everybody. Well, Mike, thanks for doing this. This hey. was, this was so was awesome. Fun. Thanks. Greg. Yeah. Likewise. Take care. We'll see you around. Yeah. I want to thank Michael Farber for joining the podcast. And also it was great. It was an incredible, uh, experience for me. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I also want to thank all the writers who shared their best Michael Farber stories. You all know who you are if you're listening to this. Um, also, I want to encourage you to subscribe to The Athletic. Of course, we have all of our Full 60 archives at The Athletic. You can get them on The Athletic app and listen to them there. If you're not a subscriber, listeners get 40% off a year's subscription to The Athletic. Just go to theathletic.com slash full 60 and you get 40 percent off a subscription plus you get all the hockey coverage and every other sport that we cover around the world it's it's crazy we have a gigantic staff now so definitely check that out and before we wrap up i just wanted to give a shout out to hockey skills who left a five-star review at itunes or not apple podcasts that reads interesting guests each week podcasts are entertaining craig is great um, thanks, Hockey Skills. I, I appreciate everybody who is leaving reviews. It helps us out a ton. So if you have a quick second right now to go, well, first of all, make sure you're subscribing on whatever podcast listening app you are using, hopefully The Athletic, but whatever works for you, and um, leave a review. That really helps me out a ton, helps spread the word for the podcast, helps make sure that the guests that take time to join this podcast and carve out an hour um, that people are listening to it, that it has a, a, a huge growing audience, which is what we have, and I really appreciate that. So thanks again for that review, and thanks to everybody else who has left a review, and thanks for listening. Have a great week. <laughs>